millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Music in My Life with me, Laura Wright. Today, I'm joined by a friend and colleague from the world of horse racing, which, of course, we've welcomed back to our TV screens in recent weeks. Edge Chamberlain is a presenter for ITV Sport and is the face of horse racing in this country, fronting huge events like the Grand National, Cheltenham Festival and the Derby. Prior to that, Ed presented a variety of sports in his 19 years at Sky and became their main presenter of the Premier League in 2010. He hosted Sky Sports flagship shows Super Sunday and Monday Night Football alongside Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher. Since the start of 2017, Ed transferred to ITV and has headed up the racing coverage since then, and I should say incredibly successfully too. Today we talk about Ed's wonderful combined relationship with music and sport, and why his favourite pieces of music have such strong emotional connections to him personally. I hope you enjoy. I'm chatting with the wonderful Ed Chamberlain today. I'm delighted, Ed, that you've been able to make some time to talk about music with me. Um, we should also mention that we aren't together in a studio, sadly, because of what's going on around the world. And I'm sure people are sick to death of talking about COVID-19. So we won't delve into that. But of course, we are recording remotely. In fact, you were just talking about how you've had to have sort of a studio built in your house, haven't you? <laughs> That's right. It's been the strangest time to be a, a television presenter, Laura, honestly, because we made a promise to, when racing was ready, we'd be ready to go. And it happened a bit quicker, if I'm honest, than we thought it was going to. So there was a big panic in early May to get ready to broadcast remotely. And that included four of us, presenters and pundits, having studios in our homes and the director, the director's assistant and the editor all working from home as well. If you were to ask me how it was done, Technically, I would not have a clue. I would not have a clue. All, all I know, it was just we had different delays around the country in your ear. So in Hampshire, where I am, I had a three-second delay, while Francesca in Newmarket had a seven-second delay. And it was oh, really? all very weird. It was all very, bet, very strange. I bet people would be really interested, actually, to hear about that. And I, I should ask as well, in terms of, you know, working remotely, working from home, you've got, you know, your own family. How has it been juggling lockdown and <laughs> homeschooling and everything that's been going on? Yeah, there have been some external noises that people at home might have heard. <laughs> my son sort of scored a free kick in the garden in his Southampton shirt, or my daughter was practicing her singing lesson. She loves her music and singing, my 14-year-old. And you're always worried there'd be a knock at the door with a, a question about geography or Latin or something. But we got away with it. We got away with it. And, and on one day, my spare room's tiny, but I had uh, my son came in to watch the program. And another time, I had a Sunday Telegraph journalist sitting on my spare bed <laughs> watching no, the right. show. Yeah, it was all 
all very strange, but quite successful. So um, I think people were happy. But by Royal Ascot time, we were obviously back on track, which is much easier because you need to interact. It's a bit like now. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I can't see your reactions and so on. And, and the pundits I work with, you want to to have a laugh with them and see their reaction and so on sometimes. So Yeah, um, and I think also in terms of sport as well, do you need to jump out? No. Is that, <laughs> what can I hear? I like it. I think we should leave it. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't think it's me. I mean, I have a six-month-old. It sounds like more of a toy that would be for us. <laughs> it's bizarre. It seems to have gone. That's so funny. I love it. But that's just proof. It's like that's a sort of ice cream <laughs> van or something. But was it? It's not an yeah. ice cream van. Can you run out and get me a, a Magnum, yeah, please? Yeah, exactly. Strawberry <laughs> Nivy, yeah. And a ma- two Magnums <laughs> and a nice lolly. I know. Honestly, it's so hot today as well. We're enjoying a really, you know, lovely British summer, I have to say. Um, but yeah, I was I was going to say, actually, have you, have you missed, you know, sport? Have you missed watching sport live and obviously watching it on television as well? Has it felt like there's been sort of a big gap in your life for the past few months? Absolutely. Yeah. I think any sports fan would agree with that. For for a while, it was lovely being different. And I've loved watching various documentaries, sporting ones and other ones. I, I've learned a lot. I, I didn't do particularly well in family quizzes, but I learned a lot during them. And programs like The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. And there was a program called The Test, which is a cricket um, documentary about Australian cricketers were just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But I think any sports fan would agree, Laurie, you, you you can't beat unscripted drama, which is what sport is like. I got a bit bored of, of scripted dramas. So when we came back on June the 1st, when racing came back, oh, the hunger for it was unbelievable. And, and did you did you feel a bit of, um, I suppose, a bit of pressure in a way, because obviously racing being the first sport to come back, did mm. you feel that pressure as a as a presenter to sort of give, you know, give the people who have been sitting at home something exciting to see? And of course, you you know, that never fails with, with racing in itself because it's just such an exciting sport. But did you feel a little bit of pressure with that? That's a great question because, yeah, I did. I said, I made it quite public really that I've been in in TV for 20 odd years and that was the biggest responsibility I felt presenting racing that first weekend when it was back and I say that not because the pressure of live sport being back and everyone being excited about it more the responsibility of knowing the world was in a bad place yet live sport was happening and our sport horse racing took a lot of stick Laura after the Cheltenham festival very unfairly Mm. because it went ahead because of government protocol. That's all we were doing, following government instruction, which at the time in the middle of March was to, to carry on as normal. And it was mm-hmm. the same with Lewis Capaldi concerts. It was the same with Crufts. It was the same with football, you know, with Atletico Madrid's fans coming over uh, for the game at Anfield. And that felt a bit unfair. So when we came back, I had a big PR job on my hands with a lot of people pointing the finger at, at racing. And I had a very much a responsibility knowing that people would be watching sport. Firstly, if they were rugby, cricket, football fans, thinking, hold on here, why is your sport happening and ours isn't? And also aware of the fact there will be people watching who've suffered an awful lot. There'll be people watching who'd lost their jobs. There'll be people watching who'd maybe had the dreaded COVID-19 and also conscious of the fact there'll be people who'd probably lost loved ones during this horrible, horrible time. And I had to be very wary of that. If I'd come on air for the 2000 guineas saying, this is great, racing's back. I think it would have been very insensitive. So I felt a huge responsibility to get that tone right, which mm-hmm. hopefully we did. I, I made quite sure we came on air with with 
pictures of of uh, banners saying thank you to the NHS and thanking the key workers and making sure that people knew that our thoughts were very much with those who'd suffered. But at the same time, sport brings joy to people's lives, doesn't it? It, it, it hopefully was an escape for people at a horrible time. And we, we had to, that message was very important again on Tuesday last week, day one of Royal Ascot, that I wasn't in a top hat and tails and I wasn't overexcited about the five days ahead. So it was a balance and a tone that hopefully I got right. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think, I think you, all of you, when it came to, yeah, last Tuesday, did an absolutely amazing job. And um, yeah, and that's not just because I, I know you as a, a person or have been, you know, lucky to have experienced um, Royal Ascot and the Grand National and, and, you know, racing meets like that around the country. But I think there was a real sense of this is an opportunity for us to come together through sport. And like you say, that's what people love about sport. Of course, there's always an opposing team or an opposing, there's always an opposition, but there's also always a winner, always a loser. There's always a second place. And there's that kind of idea that we can all come together and we can all sort of be equal, you know? And I think that's- I think it was really special and I think there was so much attention paid to, like you say, just setting the right tone. Um, And I thought it was uh, just amazing to connect as well. Like I was obviously sitting at home watching some of it, you know, with my six month old daughter and it was so lovely because I really felt involved and I felt like there was a real connection, even though you were sitting in the middle of wherever you live, you know, watching it on your television with bad signal, you know, when a lorry goes past <laughs> the window and it drops out, but there was, a, there was still that real excitement. Um, but I have to ask What did, what as well, did your daughter think when, when she recognized a voice singing the national anthem early on? She, on she was just confused why there was two of me, I think. She was like, but you're here and that's coming from there and I don't understand. Um, but yeah, she was a little taken aback, bless her. But I, my first kind of thought as well was, what was it like, you know, coming into, I suppose, an empty Royal Ascot, an empty parade ring? Weird. Really, yeah, really weird. Really weird. It was, it was it was weirdly wonderful at times. And it took a bit of getting your head round. Because again, I talk about getting the tone right. But it became a very quickly became a huge celebration, not just in this country, but around the world, a release, an escape which became very evident. That's the power of social media these days. You can tell a lot of what people are thinking around the world. And the interaction we had with people was extraordinary, honestly. And it was very strange when you're there in utter silence, in a cavernous great place with no noise, no people. You had to remind yourself all the time that, hold on, this has been watched in 122 territories around the world by tens and maybe hundreds of millions of people. So you had to remind yourself that you needed to to get up for it and be excited when there was a big winner. And that's where we're so lucky in, in our sport to have Frankie de Tori and other great characters. But for the Gold Cup winner to come back to total silence, Laura, it was eerie. It was yeah. weird. No, but I everyone bet, I mean, reacted I, to it so well. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can sort of understand that in the sense that it's like me performing to an empty theatre. And, you know, that's, that's a very strange feeling. And like, just as you said, you sort of have to remind yourself that people are watching because yeah, otherwise you start to feel relaxed. And part of, you know, your job as a presenter, mine as a performer actually is to take that adrenaline that you have from it being something live and, and sort of use that to your advantage. Um, but I, I guess also in terms of what we're talking about today is, you know, I talk about the emotional connection that music can play in our lives. And of course, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the emotional connection between music and sports specifically um, today. But this kind of brings me on weirdly to your first choice. Um, so 
I give my guests eight questions and you've chosen four of those questions. And the first one is a song that reminds you of good times. Um, but before before we get onto that, has, have you always had sort of an emotional connection with music or is it something that's kind of come and gone in your life, do you think? No, always. And I think that's largely because I was such a hopeless musician. I'd always wanted, I was a trier, but I was useless. It's one of my biggest regrets, particularly when you've got kids, is that I never played an instrument properly. I never really learned to read music. My singing career is very much laughed at by my children because I was a member of a choir for a while. And this is an absolute true story that we were hired, not paid or anything, because we were young, to go and sing at a wedding. And at the rehearsals on the Friday, we were so bad, Laura, the bride. Honestly, this is true. Burst into tears. <laughs> no. And the three, the three songs, little did we know, the three songs we were due to sing were cut down to one. I remember no. at the time thinking, this is a bit odd. We're, only, we're going all this way to sing once. Um, and yeah, that was the pinnacle of my singing career. So my children have laugh at my inability, which to me is actually a great sadness because I absolutely love music. I, everywhere I go, um, be that running, be that driving, being that involvement in sport, um, I want music to play a part. So much so that last week, when we bring it back to Royal Ascot again, last week, during the silence, I said if, to Guy Henderson, who runs Ascot, I said, if you could do one thing for me, it would be bring music into this. Because mm. it was so emotive seeing horses come back with the jockey in tears or Frankie Dettori punching the air, but it had no gravitas. It had, it had silence and it needed music. And they then produced a fanfare, which helped. But come the derby next weekend, I want the horse to come back to some really dramatic music because music and sport, honestly, just go hand in hand for me. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, you know, that's why this first choice, which is, of course, a piece of music from, well, from the London Olympics, um, Caliban's Dream by Underworld. Tell me a bit about why this song has sort of stayed with you through the years, why it reminds you of such a good time in your life. It was incredible. I think just for everything, for family, for friends, for the country, for sport, for school children, that month in 2012 was the best thing this country I think's ever done. I think we are brilliant in this country of organizing things, aren't we? Be that the last night of the proms through to big events of any kind, be they celebratory VE day the other day, for example, in lockdown. We're still wonderful. The way this country organized things are brilliant. And the London Games were just a triumph for so many different reasons. And I remember the build-up to it just being the most exciting thing, young and old. I remember everyone being up for it and it all building to the opening ceremony in the Olympic Stadium. We, we, there was so much intrigue around it because they'd kept secret who was lighting the flame. They'd kept secret the role of the Queen. They'd kept secret the theme of the opening ceremony. And I think I'm, it's fair to say it blew everyone away. It was yeah. one of those things normally is picked apart and criticised in some capacity. Everyone loved the start to the Olympic Games in London. It was just the proudest day to be British. It really was. And what followed was immense. It really was. And yeah, it set the what, scene, what, didn't it? And what reminded me of it was one of the first things I did in lockdown, and I think it was on the BBC as well, they replayed um, London 2012. And... Honestly, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up again. I watched the whole opening ceremony, didn't miss a second of it, reminiscing about it. And this tune is just so beautiful with, with the youngsters, the young choir singing in it. It's haunting as well. And I can just remember so clearly being glued to it 
at the opening ceremony itself with the athletes arriving and the flame being lit. And I've played this tune so often and every time it just brings back the most awesome memories of being proud to be British. I couldn't agree with you more. And in fact, I think that's a a great introduction. Let's have a listen to this uh, Caliban's Dream by Underworld from the London Olympics. I, I, yeah, I (laughs) mean, I I know. And I was actually going to say, so obviously when I saw that this was one of your choices, I did exactly the same. I started watching the opening ceremony. I could not stop watching it. And then I got really, really emotional. And I don't know whether it's sort of the, the Danny Boyle effect or I think, I think it was also a moment where everyone just felt incredibly proud to show the story of the country, to show this narrative of where we've come from, what we've been through and, and sort of giving everyone, each and every individual that identity. And of course, with that sort of witty, sarcastic British humor as well, yeah. you know, all tied in together. And it was just, I mean, of course, as well with that piece, um, yeah, you mentioned the choir, so it's the Dockhead Choir. Um, and then it has this uh, soprano, Elizabeth Roberts, which comes in at the end and this soaring high notes just kind of leave you on this really vulnerable beautiful kind of feeling to end the piece with and I I remember as well listening to this song in particular over and over again after the ceremony itself and and reading into the fact that it was about um Caliban you know the the role of Caliban in the Tempest and there's Shakespeare there's just so much in it so much emotion and I think that's what I love that you chose this song because that's what sport does isn't it? it it brings alive that emotion in us and it was just the perfect I think I don't know if you agree, but it's sort of the perfect Definitely. Um, I, pre-event I think, to the Olympics. I think it, it, it was about the bit where this was played with the kids going round with the flames. It just fitted it so well. And that was what the games was. So much of the games was about the legacy and the next generation. And it had Layla Annalee's voice on it as well. She did, uh, did the most awesome job with the introductions. It just worked. And I hope... I really hope that that people watch that opening cere- uh, ceremony for years to come because we watched it and obviously my two don't remember anything about the games. But you're so right, the history lesson it gives from the industrial times to mm. why we're so proud of the NHS and all these different elements of our wonderful country were so incredibly displayed in the middle of an athletic stadium. I mean, how bonkers is that? Um, but it was just, there was so much scepticism about, do you remember about how much money was being spent and so on and so forth? And then yes. just for it all to come together in this inspiring couple of hours. And did your, did your children, did that, did your children love it when they saw a yeah. little bit of it as well? Were they absolutely amazed that that happened in a stadium? I think they couldn't believe that they had those towers, which I'd yes. forgotten as well, actually. And they had all the greenery and they had all the dancing and all the different elements to it is, is, is mind blowing. It is staggering. And those aerial shots, and to be honest, their favourite moment was was the Queen um, <laughs> with Daniel Craig, yeah. And has she really come out of that helicopter? It's, it's just, as you say, a bit of British humour chucked in as well. It was just the perfect blend. And yeah. I, I honestly found it so emotive to watch again. And I use that music 
when you when you come off air, a little bit like when you've done a concert or a performance, Laura, you need to unwind, don't you? Yes, and absolutely. That, that is my song after a, a big television show. I have an hour often to, to, to calm down before I get home and see the family. And that is my song just to chill me out. And do you still do you still get nervous about presenting? Yeah. Yeah. Do you still get nervous about performing? I bet you do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. That's why I ask because people always ask me and they go, gosh, you get oh. nervous. I, every time, no matter what it is, if it's singing in front of two people or two million, I'm always nervous no matter what. <laughs> and so you should be. I think I always say to people, embrace nerves, whether that's an exam, a performance, or you're going on live television. If you don't have nerves, then you should be more worried. I used to mm-hmm. present football and my director would always come in my ear before a smaller guy, I don't want to offend any football teams, but say Middlesbrough against Hull would, would come in my ear always a minute before on air. And you'd, I, I hate those counts you get in your ear because everything in television is about timing. And when you get a minute before you go on air, before a Grand National or, or a World Cup final or a big Premier League decider, my goodness, your heart beats out of your chest. But before those games, my director would always come in my ear and said, Ed, these are the ones. These are the ones where you need to switch on. Because if you haven't got those nerves and that adrenaline, that's when you'll make mistakes. Complacency yeah. in television is a terrible thing. So I, I, I've become better at it, but I get terribly nervous. I really do before big days. And I've learned to embrace it and think this is a good thing. I'm on it. You know, this is going to be good. Definitely. Um, definitely. It, keep, it makes you feel alive as well. And, you know, it's also it's not worth doing if you don't get nervous. And my mum always used to say to me if I'd sing something challenging and I'd ring her about five times that week going, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> and then after I'd performed it, I go, I want to do that again. I want to do that again. So what's the most um, nervous you've ever been? Oh, uh, I was An most anthem? nervous. No, it was when my grandfather, who isn't with us anymore, was watching because he's very stoical and he was like, he'd just do a sort of nod on nod of the head if he approved and nothing if he didn't. And I remember really? I was singing at Covent Garden Opera House with the Royal Ballet and that for him was like, you know, kind of amazing. And for me, it was probably, yeah, highlight of my career. And I remember singing a solo and I was just petrified because I knew he was there. It wasn't that it was, you know, the stage or the people, it was because my grandfather was there. And then afterwards he kind of did his little nod and a raised eyebrow. And I thought, yes, wonderful. So because so, I'm always asked and I'm, I've started to do some training on it, how you deal with nerves as a presenter. And, the, and one of the ways for me is obviously to embrace it, but I, I also go a beat slower so I'll, I'll always talk a beat slower consciously on Derby Day, Grand National Day, day one of Royal Ascot. But as a singer, you can't do that. Mm, so yeah, how, no, you've got you, it. You've got to calm you, yourself. Yeah, you just calm yourself and... Yeah, I mean, with singing, oh my goodness, it's a big conversation, but with singing, your breath... Because my voice would wobble. Yeah, so when you get nervous, your breath gets shorter. So that's why you do so many kind of breath exercises and practice, 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 because then when it comes to an opportunity where you might be nervous and you're in front of people and there's a live audience, then your breath will only shorten to a point where you can still control it. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of practice and experience. And and also I think I'm always of the thinking as well that once you've got through the start as well, you sort of get into your you know, you get into your rhythm. And I think that's kind of, you know, just getting over that first hurdle, then you're into it and it's fine. And also using your body and using the things that, you know, make you feel safe and, you know, using your mind to sort of inspire you and take you to other places. Everyone has different ways of coping, I think. Um, fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Because we can cheat. In television, you can cheat sometimes. <laughs> so, so sometimes I'll say to the director, if it's a really big show or a really important moment, I'll just say to him, can we pre-record this? Can we put this in the can, as we say? So sometimes on a big day, the first three or four minutes will be 
pre-recorded so that I can relax because that first touch of the ball or or that first start of your song equivalent, I've, I know that it's already good and they can just play it out. So but I do, do cheat occasionally. Yeah, but do you know what? It's really interesting because obviously um, having done a, a few performances during lockdown, for me, it's been strange because the idea of pre-recording it and or just recording something in the comfort of my own home has been really weird. And often I've actually tried to create a space where it feels like it's live so that I actually yeah. can get some of that sort of nerves and, and sort of energy flowing in a way. It's, it's interesting. I know exactly but- what you mean. And, and I used to work with Gary Neville a lot. And unless it was live... He, he, it just didn't work for him. He needed, really? having been a footballer, he needed that adrenaline and pressure to perform. He, he hated, and we never did it with him because it just didn't work. If he knew he had a second chance, it didn't work. Yeah. I'm a bit different yeah. to that, but that, that was the way he operated. And I'll always remember talking of nerves. The first ever Monday night football I did, I remember being absolutely terrified. I was following guys who'd done it for 20 years. It was an iconic show. And I was the new kid on the block. And I remember saying to Gary, thinking, God, he's so calm. He's so calm. I'm so nervous. Why is this? And we got the the 30 second count in, in our ear. 30 seconds were on air for our first ever Monday night football. And I said, Gary, are you okay? And he, and he went, no, in his Mancunian accent. He said he hadn't been that nervous since the tunnel at Euro 96 when he's playing for England. And then I suddenly realized, oh no, he's as nervous as I am. And it, it wasn't the best show ever, I can assure you. Oh yeah, but then actually, sometimes when you look back, that's what makes those moments as well. Is sort of the the you know they showed it the other day, Laura. It was terrible, honestly. Oh really? Oh okay. It was so so bad. They made a half hour show about it in lockdown. Gary's first ever Monday Night Football, which was also mine, and it was a source of great hilarity. (laughs) Okay, I won't try and get you out of that one. Then there's no way of spinning that one. I'm afraid. No. (laughs) Oh dear. Um, Okay, so this is your your next song that you've chosen is your um, hype song or sports song, and this. This is something that I, yeah, again, didn't actually know the full story behind this piece of music, but it is, people will know it widely as the theme tune to the Grand National um, called Champions. Do you want to sort of talk about the piece yourself before I add a little bit of what I've kind of learned about it? But um, yeah, tell me about why this piece is so iconic for you. Crikey, I'd have to try and fit this in. I could talk about this song for hours. It means so much to me, <laughs> Laura, honestly. It, and I think it, anyone who's a sports fan or a racing fan, this song resonates. So it first resonated for me because of the film, if I'm honest. And in 1981, a horse called uh, Alderniti won the Grand National for a jockey called Bob Champion. And that sounds very ordinary on the face of it, but it had the most extraordinary backstory to it uh, because Alderniti was a down and out horse that came back to win a Grand National. But the man on board had, had cancer. And that's obviously become a big part of my life because I've had a similar story to him. And Bob Champion had recovered from cancer, not only recovered and lived, and I had a similar disease 30 years on when medicine was completely different. In in that era, you had very little chance of survival. And somehow Bob survived and not only survived, but fought back to be fit enough to ride again and then fought back to be fit enough to ride in the most famous race in the world. And then to win it is just you can't write it can you you couldn't I mean uh, you know they did write it in a film which says it all a most extraordinary story and this music was the theme tune to that movie so that resonated with me anyway from at the time I thought it was incredible what he'd recovered from and we've obviously met since then because I had a a similar journey which we'll probably talk about a little bit later um, and survived as well thankfully and, and was very fortunate then the Grand National for me growing up was everything to me, everything. 
I was a massive sports fan, but the Grand National was the biggest event, bigger than any FA Cup final, World Cup final, Ashes Test match, anything. I just loved the Grand National, largely because my grandfather was obsessed by it. And I worshipped him and he's the one who got me into racing. He's the one to blame for where I am now. And the Grand National was the highlight of my year, bigger than anything, bigger than any event, family event, anything. Never slept. I'd sleep fine knowing Father Christmas was coming the next morning. I never slept the night before the Grand National. <laughs> I would be so excited. And did, and you, did would... you have kind of a setup? What was your setup? Do you remember when you were younger, well, you know, come well, Grand National Day? The big setup would be, would be preparing the, the family sweepstake. I was in charge of that. And so that I would... The, the newspapers would generally have the runners uh, the day before it would all be set up. So it'd be the Friday newspaper, which I would have cut up and then separated into different groups. Then I'd try to learn all 40 horses' names. Game used to be me. Could I recite all the Grand National runners? <laughs> then I, I remember inventing a game one year with a friend of mine called Tom, where we tried to say all the Grand National runners in one breath. I remember it so <laughs> well. Brown wins a hungry her. I can remember half the names. And <laughs> it, I was just obsessed by it, unhealthily obsessed by it. I just loved it, absolutely loved it. And the BBC who showed it then, I knew they'd come on air at 12.15 and Des Lynham was my hero in life. I had great sporting heroes, but Des Lynham, believe it or not, the television presenter was the biggest hero in my life. And he was a master at the start of Grand National Days, just the coolest dude on the planet. And he would just come into vision sometimes, Laura, and all he'd have to say was, big day today. And then generally it would cut into this music. And, oh, honestly, it was... The music just meant the world to me when I was from the age of I'd have I'd have been seven when Aldenity won the Grand National. So from then onwards, I was I was just hooked by the Grand National. And then I started going to the Grand National when I was at school and a student. And when I joined ITV, the first thing I said to my boss when he said, "How? What's your vision of ITV racing?" This is back in 2016. I said, "Well, listen, the Grand National is my dream." To present a Grand National is my dream, but you've got to promise me one thing, and I'm not taking this ITV job unless you can make this promise. We're bringing the champion's music back, which wasn't used by Channel 4, who were before us. And I said, we have to bring this music back because I want people at home to feel like teenagers again watching the Grand National. I want them to remember what it meant to them when they were little. And listen, hopefully it worked. The year before, the year we brought back the champion's music, we won a, we won a BAFTA for the coverage. So... I think it worked. I think yeah. it worked. It's a very I, special piece of music. It is a very special piece of music. And you're right. It's that nostalgia for a lot of people that it keeps a memory alive. And that is, for me anyway, i in complete agreement with you. That's the power of music. It has the ability to take you back to one place or even just give you one feeling. And you're literally, you know, you're 11 years old again, sat there in front of the TV, jumping up and down, pretending you're a jockey, shouting, you know, shouting the name of your right. horse, whatever That's it might right. be. And I think that is just why music can be so powerful. And do you know what, as well, I think, um, in this podcast series, this is the first time someone's chosen a really classical piece of music as well. And that's, again, I think the power that sport has in bringing different genres of music to audiences that might not necessarily hear it or be exposed to it. Um, but let's let's have a listen to the Champions theme tune. Uh, this is written by Carl Davis.
beautiful. Does that bring oh. back some lovely memories for you? Yeah, I don't want you to stop it. I, I could listen <laughs> to that. It, do you know what it brings back? It brings back so many different different memories for me because sport at its greatest times, the BBC used to absolutely master matching music with sport. And so many people of my age, I think I must be the oldest you've had on the podcast and what you've just said there about the music, but you'd associate a specific tune with Six Nations rugby, with snooker, with golf. And this is the music you associated with racing. And the wonder of that music, Laura, is you can do so much with it. You can just leave it alone and let the drama tell the story, or you can put over great commentaries. I associate it with great Peter O'Sullivan commentaries in racing, like Red Rum. You play that champion's music and you hear words like, you know, you've never heard a reception like it. And it, it, it makes you cheer. It makes you cry. It, it is just beautiful. And it, I had a tear in my eye. And again, it's going to be more of a thing next year with what we'll probably talk about in a minute and the sadness of it. But when we launched the Grand National in February this year, and you and I were lucky enough to be involved, they played that tune on the organ in that mm -hmm. wonderful building in Liverpool. Do you remember? And yeah. honestly, I could not speak afterwards. It was the most emotive, beautiful thing I've seen in a very long time or heard in a very long time. It's, um, yeah, it was quite difficult to, to host and speak after it. It's just a beautiful piece of music played on the most beautiful organ I've ever seen and definitely one of the world's biggest and most beautiful organs. It was just, it was just felt perfect to me. It really did. Yeah. And I think again, yeah, as you say, you know, something, an instrument like the organ has stood the test of time. It's something that is, um, although people might not realize, but crafted and takes a very long time to create an organ and an organ isn't just what you see. I mean, the pipes go on and on forever that the actual organ itself is enormous, you know, and it in itself. Enormous, it? Yeah, it is. And it's like a feat of engineering and, and creativity just to create that sound. And I think also that for me as well, growing up, falling in love with classical music, that's what sort of goes right through into your chest and, and sort of has that emotional effect on people is when you hear the crash of a cymbals when you hear you know the roll of a timpani drum in these classical pieces it just builds and builds that excitement and that anticipation and it is it's so wonderful to hear that piece of music and, and also hear how important those memories are for you and and that emotional connection that it brings about for you it's just it's really lovely to to hear and I have to say I didn't know about this film when I was reading about it I knew about the piece of music and what was really interesting actually was when I was reading about the composer um he is very very famous for writing music for silent movies and I found that really interesting because actually you've probably got to be incredibly talented musically to create music for silent movies, to give the passion and the drama. And I didn't even know that about him as a composer. So um, there you go. There's some information about. Wow, Carl I Davis. didn't know that. See, this could be very useful for Grand Nationals in the future because that music is something I will use forever. As long as I'm involved in the Grand National, it, they just go hand in hand. I cannot imagine a Grand National without the wonderful champions music. So. He was blessed with genius, that's for sure. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he won he won a BAFTA uh, in 1981 for Best Original Music and, you know, alongside Ennio Morricone. You know, he is he is one of those wonderful composers who I feel is a little bit underplayed, actually, and not necessarily known about um, to the wider public as much. So, yeah, I think it's lovely to hear that piece of music um, today, for sure. And like you say, I wish we could hear more of it. I have to listen to it after, after this chat in full. <laughs> um, <laughs> then put it to sport as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's fair to say Liverpool and Aintree and is, is close to your heart now, isn't it, as well? Oh, goodness. I can't tell you how wonderful the people of Liverpool are and how kind and how generous. 
And that kindness just seeps through when you're there. And it, I was so, I was genuinely devastated when I knew that, you know, the Grand National wouldn't be happening. And, and of course, everything that happened as a result of that was wonderful to try and, you know, excite people around the Grand National. And I think it was a really tough job to do that, but I just, I really missed it. And I missed that sort of craziness of those four days of just carnage and busyness and horses and you know it was just wonderful every year and it seems to get better and better um year upon year so yeah I did miss it it's an amazing thing I, I, I this year I'd like to dedicate that song to a friend of ours who we've lost in such tragic circumstances Laura Rose Patterson who was chairman of of entry someone who played a big part in both our lives I think it's fair to say she to me was just wonderful she was she was the most beautiful person inside and out who understood the pressure I was under with the first Grand National and I remember I parked my car near her in 2017 and walked into the race course with her and she was just I was so nervous and she was so delightful and so calm and so reassuring and so lovely to me and we kept in touch after every big race meeting and obviously after anything to do with Aintree and she was the person who really made Liverpool proud of the Grand National. The Grand National has gone through so many different phases. It you know, nearly disappeared completely in the 70s. And a few years ago, when Rose took over, it was in a bit of trouble, particularly financially. And she has, has left this world so tragically, but she's left the Grand National in such good shape in terms of welfare, which is a big factor, in terms of its connection with the community, in terms of its popularity. And she, with, again, friends of ours called Jess and Grant, made Liverpool people so proud of their big event. I, I, pre I present a lot of events where that connection's not there. If they ever ask me what's missing in a big event, I say to them often, it's the connection you've got with the local community. Because if you can create an event the locals are proud of, they will support it to the maximum. They'll get behind it. They'll attend it. They'll make such a difference to it. And, and Rose made that connection, realised that, that Liverpool needed an event to be proud of. And my goodness, she did it well. And she was such a... A lovely person and and the Grand National and Aintree and and I'm afraid not going to be the same without her I think you'd probably agree with that wouldn't you yeah I think so and I think yeah everything you said there is it's lovely to be able to speak about it and I think both of us were saying as well we're still kind of taking in that news because it has come as such a shock and sometimes in you know sporting bodies if you like you lose someone who is just great and who is wonderful and who has contributed selflessly to a sport um for the greater good and and to create and have that continuity of excitement and history you know in something like the Grand National and yeah I think she's going to be greatly greatly missed by so many people and I have to say on the few occasions that I've spoken to her and spent time with her, she's just, she really has made you feel like, you know, you're a really important, crucial part of the team. And I think that's when things become a success is when every single person feels mm. like they matter. And I think she was able to do that. And I'm sure there'll be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people pouring in tributes as well about her over the coming days and weeks. And I think it's lovely to, to mention her today because it's very important. She's a very important, carry on being in a very important part of the Jockey Club yeah. of Aintree, you know, of it all. So um, It's funny how she, she got the importance of music as well. When you think that the Grand National launch or weights, whatever you want to call it, used to be the most stale event, if I'm honest. And they have mu used not just the local community, but the power of, of music and the local community to just put it on a different level. This year, 
you should describe what you did. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever watched or been involved with, with signing the songs you were singing. Yeah, um, it was the Liverpool signing choir and, and I performed. So emotive. Yeah, some uh, Beatles songs and um, it was a it was a medley of Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just one of those. And then you did Imagine as well, didn't you? Which was... Yeah, I did Imagine with the organ as oh. well, stood in the loft next to the organ and the choir signed and, and having, I think also, you know, having a younger, the younger generation coming through and and just that again, like you've mentioned that sense of community, I think everyone in that room felt incredibly emotional. I had to keep it together to sing. Actually, I had to, you know, swallow the lump in my throat and thought, come on, Laura, mm. you've got to, you've got to perform this. You've got to keep it, keep your head in the game here. <laughs> um, yeah. And I did have a little cry afterwards because I, my daughter Ottilie was only a few months old at the time. So being very hormonal and emotional, I think I yeah. went and saw my husband and was like, oh my goodness, that was so beautiful. So um, yeah, I felt very lucky. To, to be, be honest with you, any, anyone who was there was feeling exactly the same thing. It was just <laughs> yeah. the power of what you guys did and the kids and just showed music in its best light. It was just so powerful. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I've still got the video. A lot of people set social media and sent me the video on my phone. I've still got it and listen to it. It's just awesome. It's an yeah, awesome song you. that as well. It's yeah, an awesome I, I song. Agree. I love the way it switches. It changes completely. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool. Really yeah, cool. Yeah, it is. It goes it from something very delicate and sort of quite vulnerable and then goes something really, really strong and sort of anthemic yeah. towards the end, which is, I think, what you need in sporting arenas. It's that sense of, you know, the, the small becoming the big and the mighty through um, through a song is is powerful. But I think, you know, we're also this next song for you is, is very emotional. You know, we're talking about quite emotional topics. 
So you basically <laughs> saying the reason the dinosaurs stopped living is because they all collectively made uh, a decision to have no more children. Oh, they're talking. Now. I think until ten years ago, I I still shared the bathwater that my parents were in. You can find us wherever you got this podcast. Just search for Baffled Amazing Facts. You chose a song for Tough Times, um, an Elton John song. And I know this was very important at a certain time in your life. And I guess it's still, you know, still very important to you to this day. Yeah, it is. Um, I don't talk about it a lot, to be honest, because at the end of the day, I feel I feel very fortunate and the cancer is such an evil thing and I defy anyone whose lives aren't touched by it in some capacity and I feel very fortunate as strange as that sounds it's actually much harder on people around you than it is yourself when you're in control of your journey I always felt in control once I knew I was going to be okay so basically what happened is to cut a long very long and boring story short is is things were going great I was presenting football and flying along. And then I had this pain in my stomach for a considerable period of time in the Christmas of 2009. And I'd go to my GP and say, I've got a real pain in my stomach here. And I was diagnosed with a stomach ulcer, believe it or not. I was taking Rennie. I was carrying on presenting, taking Rennie, but every four hours I'd have to, to take Nurofen. I was in so much pain in my stomach and I was stopping sleeping. I was hemorrhaging weight. And I kept going back to the GP and they said, oh. And one day I actually said to them, could I have stomach cancer here? And they sort of laughed it off. And then one day I'd done a what was called a soccer special, which is quite an intense football show. And I'd got home and I was sleeping in a spare room because I was just in so much pain and having to get up during the night. And I collapsed and I was really? whisked away in an ambulance to Winchester Hospital. And I was diagnosed initially with um, pneumonia. Then I was diagnosed with lymphoma, which is cancer of the blood. Then things started to get quite serious. And they took a, a biopsy just to, to try and find out what was wrong with me. And I remember going home and I was so weak and so ill that I just wanted to know what was wrong. And mm. I went back into Winchester Hospital. I remember it well on a Wednesday afternoon. And the doctor, bless her, you know, she's a lovely lady, but was in floods of tears. And she was in floods of tears because she was t- to tell me I had a tumor in my stomach. And I remember my wife froze. And I, I, I can remember so clearly in my mind thinking, how long are they going to give me? You know, this, is this going to be three months, six months? And... Um, from there, the, the journey improved. I was I saw an um, oncologist who I owe my life to on the Friday. And he said, I think I can save you, which is a big thing. Because mentally, Laura, one thing I am is very strong. And I was sent into hospital that weekend, that Saturday, to have chemotherapy. I didn't know what chemotherapy was. I had no idea. No idea. And chemotherapy is brutal. There are d- loads of different types of chemotherapy. Um, some very mild, some very strong, some have different, everything... It, it, it affects different people in different ways. But mine was absolutely brutal. And I didn't care because I was so ill. I wanted them to throw the kitchen sink at me. And I remember waking up the first morning after chemotherapy. And for the first time, because this tumor in my stomach was pressing against all these different things, um, I was pain-free for the first time in a long time. But in hospital, it, it's quite a journey you have. I'd, I'd have three nights of chemotherapy and then come home for a bit. And then you'd just start to recover and be able to walk the dog. And then whack, you get whacked again. And... Uh, um, you pretty quickly become pretty mentally strong. And as I say, it's easy for you to deal with, very tough on wives, mums, and all the people around me. And I will never forget the, the importance of music to me because my journey got better after, after my second bout, my markers. Your, everything's measured by your markers for your blood. 
And Lance Armstrong, whose book I read, and I, I know he's disgraced, but his book to me at the time was a huge inspiration because he's recovered and his markers were in the thousands. Mine were just in the hundreds. And as soon as they came down, that's when you know you're going to be okay. You know you can survive this. But all the time, you have so much time to spend on various drips and chemotherapy is dripped into your wrist and you it would go through the night of chemotherapy and, and you can sleep during the, the liquid water bags, but with the poisonous bags, basically, you're up for three or four hours at a time. And that's when headphones on and you'd escape with music. I remember that there was one bag and each bag would probably last two hours dripping into your veins and it would be a hellish two hours. And I'd take my sickness tablets, my, I'd be preemptive. I knew what different bags, the effects they'd have on me. And I'd take my two sickness tablets, knowing that hopefully that would stop me feeling sick after this horrible bag. And I'd put my headphones on and just disappear with music. And the music I remember most is Elton John. <laughs> For some reason, Elton John kept my spirits going and he was the best diversion, particularly at nighttime um, when I was having my chemotherapy. And I look back at it now and think, thank goodness for Elton John keeping me yeah. sane. Well, I think, you know, you say you don't know why it was Elton John, but I mean, he's one of the greatest songwriters of our time. And, you know, he is incredibly talented. And I think, though, it's very... I, it's amazing and thank you for sharing your story because I think a lot of people would be there's so many stories that you hear of people being unsure of what something is and then the diagnosis and I think people having to fight to keep asking the questions about you know whether mm. something is potentially cancer or you know be it something else um, and it's really important I'm sure you'd agree that people do keep asking those questions because it sounds like you being mentally strong and sort of uh, driven as a person kept you going back and asking which ultimately led to that diagnosis would you say yes definitely I think that's a big part of it big part of it get on the front foot if you're worried don't sit still never sit yeah. still find out because sometimes you can leave it too late which is the worst possible thing you can do and then once you know that's when you know what you can do what you can do and that's where in my journey after I'd spoken to my oncologist and then when my blood markers came down there was nothing going to stop me I was so strong mentally yeah but you've also got to be aware of people around you that was that was one of my lessons the effect it has on people around you and even now this is this is nine ten years on even now when I get a cold people around me panic you know Really? Um, so there's still that sort of um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. question mark well, I, and, and concern over things? Yeah, well, I am very different to that. I'm very different because I feel, how lucky am I? You know, I mm. don't feel sorry for myself at all. D during the journey, when you lose every hair on your body, you know, I didn't shave for six months, bizarrely. And it's, it's really tough. It is really tough. You have to deal with a lot of different things. But at no stage do you want people to feel sorry for you. Mm. You, just want norm you just want normality. Uh, the thing I struggled with most when I was up and able to walk about was walking down a high street with a woolly hat on, even though it was warm, because I didn't want people to see my head and I had no eyebrows and going into a shop. That's what I didn't like and, and mm. why I talked to lots of people going through similar things, because that's the hard bit. You just want to be normal. You want to be normal again, which means, and hopefully I can be an inspiration for some, because I have come out the other side. When I get to entry on a big day, like we've described a minute ago, or just tomorrow, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting a big race at Newcastle tomorrow from Ascot. I will, at some point during that day, I will think, goodness me, how lucky am I to be here? Yeah. 
and I appreciate normality, just little things more. Even 10 years later, I appreciate just little things, sitting, having a drink in the sun or whatever it might be. I appreciate them more than I can describe, I can assure you. And I feel so sorry for people going through through difficult times. But I think a lot of people would take solace from that, especially at the moment. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? To know that you're not the only one out there or someone understands exactly how you feel. And and also, I think the power of just being able to listen to someone's story and just to be there, you know, as a sounding board sometimes is, is so important. And we know actually at the moment during this period of time as well and a global pandemic, a lot of people are facing, you know, problems alone and, and losing people alone and not being able to say goodbye. And there's been a lot of that. And I think, you know, to, for you to speak openly about this and also, like you say, to sort of be... Um, to be something positive, you know, the outcome for you was positive and you went through it and you're incredibly strong mentally and, and saw it as a challenge and, and fought through it. And I think that's really important for people to hear those positive stories. I know um, my dad had a stroke and a heart attack and I know exactly like you say, the impact it has on the people around you um, can make it really hard. And so I think even you saying that and being aware of that is incredibly, is, that's amazing. But let's not forget as well that you are, you're a survivor and that's that's, that's amazing and also like you say you know the music it, it does play a role in that whether it's in headphones or out loud it can take you away from your current situation right. can't Absolutely it It can right. you know take you somewhere else in that moment which it sounds like it did for you how is your dad oh he's good thank you yeah he's fine he's just um you know peaks and troughs but when yeah. you say you know when someone gets unwell people worry so much more and it's yeah, very much yeah. like that you know he's been obviously shielded and um yeah. I've been doing I've been doing a lot of zoom workshops with people like the stroke association and actually yeah. Alder Hay hospital which you know well oh, sending them lots of music yeah. videos and you know I think music can be really uplifting during those tough times yeah, so I think I think it's so important with everything like that to know the support networks are there. And we've had tragedies recently in racing where, you know, you just wish that you'd just said, please get some help. Um, obviously people have got to want to help themselves, but the support networks are there. And after my little journey, the thing that broke my heart, Laura, was um, the kids in, I was, I was treated in Southampton General and my ward was horrible. I, I, it still haunts me now. I have to go, but I have an MOT each year, which I really appreciate because um, for peace of mind. But it's still, I can remember all the smells and all the, it comes straight back. And, it, it, you know, you'd make friends in your ward and then they might not be there the next day. And it was hard, but what was hardest of the lot was the children's ward down the corridor. It just honestly broke my heart, which is why I've got involved in children's charity since. And Alder Hay is such an amazing place, but Well Child is the charity I've got connected to. I was going to say, just, yeah, you're an ambassador for them, aren't you? Yeah, and they yeah. they treat children at home. I, children in hospital just honestly just breaks my heart. And Well Child nurses seriously ill children at home because I think children should be at home. And the power of music and what we do with those kids is so, so important. And and the, the, the awards night we have is just a night to be honest with you, full of music. Um, it's incredible seeing their faces reacting. Oh, it's just amazing. Amazing. Um, yeah. And, and just as you say in, in what, and I keep saying it on ITV actually at these different race meetings, I must've said it endlessly that seeing things going on is just signs of normality. We all crave, we all crave normality, never mm -hmm. underestimate normality. And that's the thing, as I say, going through it and i'm sure people will understand this you, you, when you're ill like that you don't you don't want sympathy sympathy's 
of no great interest to you, really. You just want to be normal again. You just want to do the normal things and be a normal person. Um, And there must be a lot of people thinking that right now who've suffered so much in the last few weeks who you feel so sorry for. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that's why it comes back to, like we've mentioned, the sense of this um, positive kind of corner that we're turning if you like into the world of of live sport coming back and you know things beginning to return to normal I think it's it's great it's really positive and let's hope it you know it, it continues in the right direction um absolutely let's, and we'll appreciate let's... we'll appreciate going to a concert or whatever it might be all well I know I was gonna say I was gonna say I can't <laughs> wait to see some live music I have to say um but let's have a little listen to part of uh this song it's Elton John's your song which is your song for tough times The moss well, you of the verses, well, they've got me quite cross, but the sun's been quite kind while I wrote this song. It's for people like you that keep it turned on. Amazing. So I, Elton John as well spoke about this uh, in his uh, most recent and kind of anniversary tour that he said that Bernie Taupin, who he wrote the song with, handed him a lyric on a piece of paper and he was staying at his parents' flat in North London. And Elton John immediately just wrote the music just like that, you know, just happened read the lyrics was just like yeah got it there we go down on paper it's done and then what I was really surprised by and always am so that was it was released in 1970 on his uh, second studio album but it only reached number eight in the billboard charts and number seven in the UK singles charts and I'm like now you yeah now you listen to it and you're like how on earth did that song not reach number one but I think that happens for a lot of artists that it's sort of you know, the, the amazing kind of uh, quality of the record isn't recognized until perhaps a little later in yeah. time. Um, oh, it's just, honestly, you do it there. You just, even if, for a few seconds, you, he, his music's just the best music to escape to. And I just, and it's not just that song, there's loads on his greatest hits, Rocket Man and so on, where I would just forget what was going into my arm at the time and just disappear and and yeah, just that little crucial bit of escapism. And Definitely. And he he... That's just genius what you describe there, isn't it? That's just pure genius to be able to do that. But also it's music that resonates with young and old, isn't it? My daughter now thinks he's the best thing ever. She's 14. Really? This is Elton John who's, you know, still transcends the ages. Yeah, I love that. And there aren't many artists out there like that. And I think he's also, whenever you see him live, he still comes across as quite quite a humble and, you know, kind of not apologetic, but quite, you know, very sort of, yeah, gentle person, which is so lovely to see when you think about, you know, someone who's accumulated so much and is loved by, you know, people the world over as well. Um, I think also with that, there's quite, unlike your other two choices as well, it's it's very simplistic, which makes it, I think, quite poignant. And it's about sort of, although there's other instruments going on, it really is about one man yeah. and his piano and, and some lyrics that really hit home. And I love that about it. It's uh, you know, some of his other songs like Yellow Brick Road are vast and expansive, but this is just sort of, you know, exactly the way it needs to be a perfect pop song, perfect form, perfect length. It's just everything about it. Um, <laughs> I love hearing you say that. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I went afterwards. I remember on a summer's evening, I went to Canterbury, the cricket ground at Canterbury and listened to him just with his piano play that. You can imagine oh, wow. a glass of wine in hand. That was quite emotive. That's amazing. I'm so jealous. Oh, <laughs> Beautiful. On a summer's evening. Oh, it was just wonderful. You know. Amazing. 
Okay, so we're going to move on to your last uh, song choice. This is a song that reminds you of your childhood. So what I always want to ask for this question, this is a Duran Duran song. Tell me, like, take me back. What were you wearing? What was going on? You know, um, how long was your hair, for example? And what does this song remind you of? And, you know, that time in your life. Cracky, I'm much older than you. So this would be, I think I've, I've seen Duran Duran all over the world, but I think the one enduring memory will be post- apartheid in South Africa, I saw Duran Duran in Cape Town and it would have been 1992, I reckon. So Mandela was out, the world was changing, um, bands were going to South Africa, a huge political thing. And I'd obviously seen Duran Duran and loved them for years and years and years. So they were, they felt like my band coming to the most amazing electric happy place you can imagine Cape Town at the time. For all, for all the sadness, this felt like a celebration of a new time. Black and white, young and old, all at this concert, this open air concert in Cape Town. And I would have had really rubbish curtains, long hair, ripped <laughs> jeans, terrible, terrible Duran Duran t-shirt. Uh, I, would, I would definitely be in, in Converse. They were all the rage then, uh, baseball boots and just magic, magic, magic times and you can imagine in, in a Cape Town sunshine um it was just very very special the most awesome few months of my life that was and I was just there to coach sport in the most Cape Town is my favorite city in the world I think and to have Duran Duran my favorite band playing there you can imagine was quite a buzz a real happy memory yeah that's amazing and did you so in terms of you know Simon Le bon, was he like an idol did you try to dress like him you know with the kind of black no, he was too cool jacket? for me I was, I was he was too cool <laughs> yeah Laura I was a bit square to be honest I was a <laughs> uh I was a proper sport Billy who, who liked music couldn't sing but liked music and he was far too cool you can imagine um with the the beautiful girlfriend and and the whole band were cool and I I would never ever begin to think I was cool um, I was cool in a, in a sporting sense, but not cool in any other sense at all. Wasn't trendy, <laughs> wasn't particularly good at anything else, wasn't particularly bright, um, but I could hit a pr- cricket ball and, and, and kick a football quite well. Um, and so I always thought I might be the, the quarterback at a school prom, utterly deluded, as you can imagine. <laughs> No, listen, no, not deluded. It's always good to have things in mind that you can aim for. There's nothing wrong with but that. Y- Yasmin Le Bon was the dream, to be honest. She was just, you know, a supermodel um, with Simon Le Bon, I mean, he was just, you know, I always dreamt of being a little bit like him or, or Laura Wright. You always had that dream of just at a wedding, everyone going, go on, Ed, play the piano, go on, play <laughs> or something. And you go, no, no, stop it. No, no. And then go, okay, then. Okay, good yeah. at it. But I never had that option. I, that's the one thing I'd love to have been good at. I'd love to have been able to play the piano. It's never too late. It's never too late. That's all I can't I'd believe say. you're getting me to confess to this absolute awful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I think I was watching <laughs> some of the, I was watching some of the live, um, live performances actually as well and I saw there was one with where he sings it with Pavarotti at a benefit concert um it was for War Child I think in Moderna and it, I mean even that you know I think there are great songs that don't even have to be in a certain genre but then they can also be transformed and you hear an orchestra and it I think it also shows that it is it is a pretty good song like you know they wrote yeah. some amazing music um feel good music Pavarotti as well Rio and it. all these kind of songs are such feel good they wouldn't listen. I, I, I was a Duran Duran fan. I would never claim that they were the greatest musicians or band in the world, but my goodness, they sort of resonated. Um, and yeah, again, you can show the, how, how good they are because however many years later, this is getting on to 30 years later, 
I still listen to them avidly in the car. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Absolutely also they they hit, you know, they hit the big time in lots of different ways. I mean, they did the Live Aid concert in Philadelphia. They did a James Bond theme tune. You know, there are certain moments as well that as a band, they, you know, they really kind of but were be at their pinnacle. Me. Be honest with me. Someone of your era, would you ever listen to Duran Duran? So to be fair, to tell you the, the truth. Hesitation after, there, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to tell the truth. So I, I'd sung a, a, an England rugby match and I then got asked if I would go and sing at halftime, you know, just a bit of fun in one of the places where all the, the fancy posh people were having their lunch. And who was in there? None other than Simon Le Bon. And to be fair, whenever I ask anyone, I'm like, what do you think of when you think of Simon Le Bon? They're like, he's married to a supermodel. That's yeah. all that came into my head. And then after that, I thought, well, I better go and listen to, you know, some of their music. And I this is the thing as well I knew I knew all of their music I just didn't know it was them on certain songs as well so I think you you know you kind of music will infiltrate your memory and your mind you know that subconscious but you're not quite sure of who it was exactly or when it was recorded um but you still know that it's an iconic and also I mean in the movie layer cake like that's where I would say I know this song from oh my goodness the scene is just incredible um (laughs) but yeah so that was my experience I was like should I be starstruck and then my manager was like yes yes you should (laughs) he's pretty cool he's He's very he's I mean he's still yeah very cool but let's let's have a listen to it this is Ordinary World Duran Duran you bopping along there. Oh, that makes me smile. Yeah, it's a <laughs> tough decision, if I'm honest, because I could have gone with so many. Girls on Film, Hungry Like a Wolf, all these different songs. But I went for that one. That, it came a toss-up between that and Rio. And I'm glad I went for that one because it's, it's a beautiful song to listen to. Brings back yeah, very, no, very happy memories. Yeah, it's a great song. Great choice. Um, I think, you know, all of your choices today have been absolutely sterling. And thank you for sharing so many amazing, lovely stories. Um, It's so great to hear about all those different connections that you have with music and different times in your life as well. And um, yeah, coming from someone who's incredibly accomplished in your own field, I'm sure people will really, really enjoy listening to those stories. So thank you. Well, I think, um, Laura, with your with your questions and your gift for words, I think you're probably in the wrong vocation, aren't you? <laughs> Mark, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you do it beautifully, honestly. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. For someone like me who's not remotely musical, it's been a lot of fun to explain how music can still be such an important thing in someone's life. And um, yeah, really, really, really good fun to to talk about certain things and other things I don't talk about very often. So you've got me thinking, but... Um, music and sport will forever be linked. There's no question about that. I agree. I agree. So um, just before we go, I'm going to play you a little bit of a song, which is my suggestion or something to just sort of finish off our chat today, which is a song I think you'd like. And I've tried to um, base it on your other choices, but also base it on what I think you're passionate about as a person and and everything we talked about as well, of course, is... um, predominantly music and sport coming together but this I feel there are a lot of uh, songs that you would already know that bring music and sport together so this is more 
it's a Hans Zimmer piece. So he is for me, one of the most incredible composers and has the ability to make you visualize and sort of have that moment where, you know, you transcend everything and you take, you're taken to another world. And with this piece of music, um, it was released in 2016 and it's the, um, theme tune, if you like, for the BBC sequel to Planet Earth. I've chosen it because I felt there was a bit of classical influence in your choices, but I also feel there's this sense of empowerment and and overcoming the odds. And I feel like this music makes makes me feel that way. So we'll hear a little bit of it, but you've got to promise me that you'll go and listen to the whole thing afterwards as well. It's a promise. Okay, so this is Hans Zimmer's Planet Earth Suite 2. What do you think? Oh my goodness, I love it. And do you know what? Do you know what that made me think? That made me think, imagine that music was playing round Ascot when the big races were being run and the um, Frankie de Tori was coming in on the winner. If that that's what was lacking at Royal Ascot, I'm telling you. Well, so do I think... not be surprised, Laura Wright, and you're not getting <laughs> any royalties whatsoever. Oh no. If that, if that is reverberating around Epsom on Derby Day as the as the winner comes in. That's what that oh it's beautiful that's exactly yeah. what we need yeah to give it, it that to give the moment that special gravitas to give it that wow factor um I agree. You've got me thinking. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a beautiful piece of music and it's got those kind of African ethnic drums in there. It's got some chants that come in towards the end that just give it that kind of, oh, just it grows basically, which Hans Zimmer does so well. It just grows and grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger. And I think it also harnesses the power of, of the world that we live in that's so beautiful and sometimes we take for granted in that way. So um, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite pieces. I'm so glad that you like it as well. Oh, you're going to um, hear that. Can I, can I assure you you're going to hear that again, having just heard that. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, absolutely stunning absolutely oh, I'm stunny. really glad I'm really right glad right up my like street it. as well with, with yeah. what we've been talking about good oh Ed thank you so so much it's been honestly I think my favourite chat today and talking about so many different things and thank um, you for having me yeah no it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much and I'll, I'll just, see you just at a racing singing. Don't go in, don't go into presenting you'll have to promise me that <laughs> okay I promise <laughs> keep, keep singing <laughs> <laughs> just keep singing there we go <laughs> no thank you so much it was lovely Thanks, Ed. Thanks to you too for listening. And don't forget to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. We have some amazing guests lined up, so you'll definitely want to come back next week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not tell a friend and drop us a review? Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. 
That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.